Sound Design Live. Welcome to Sound Design Live. Today I'm speaking with the star of Big Brother, season six and seven, Howie Gordon. Howie, thanks for being here. <laughs> Thank you for uh, recognizing that there are more famous Howie Gordons than me on the planet. Uh, I'm surprised you didn't go with the executive producer of The X-Files. He also shares our name. Oh, I would have preferred that. He is actually a well-known studio musician in the Philadelphia area on all things keyboard, um, as well as a professor. So I'm really glad he could be here today because I need an update on keyboard hardware and he knows a lot about it. Um, Howie, I've seen artists perform with many controllers and a big rack of hardware and pedal boards and a lot of equipment. And then I've seen others who have a single keyboard and a computer. My dream would be if I was a keyboard player would be to just show up at a gig with one bag. I would just roll out a keyboard, plug it into my laptop, audio interface into the sound system and done. So why are some artists still choosing to carry around lots of hardware? Well, I absolutely can see the point of your dream of showing up with one small keyboard and a laptop and plugging in. Um, you know, if I have to set everything up myself, obviously that would be uh, the ideal for me. Now, if I could just show up and have people set stuff up for me, uh, I would absolutely want tons of hardware. I see. Um, because hardware is instant. It's very instantaneous in terms of, <clears throat> you know, you have an impulse, a musical impulse, and you can just go with it. Whereas um, the current state of laptops, laptops are not instant. Um, you know, I come from the, the older school of, uh, you know, pre-laptop world, where I used to, you know, be completely stupid and gig with uh, four keyboards, one of them a Hammond organ and a Leslie, and, you know, I used to cart a Wurlitzer around, wow. and, you know, while, you know, once you hit those keys, it's just butter and it sounds great. I mean, obviously, uh, the disadvantage to hardware is that it, it, it can be temperamental, depending on what it is, and it, it can break, um, but it's very instant. So if you have a musical impulse and you just want to go with something, hardware is grabbable. It's right there. You know, when I wanted to do certain effects um, on my Wurlitzer uh, with my effects pedals, I mean, pedals are right there. Um, you know, whereas the thing about having a laptop um, is that you have to go out of your way to program opportunities to be spontaneous with it. Mm -hmm. So you have, you know, for me, there was a huge breaking in period where I had to realize that I can't just, uh, just with no rhyme and reason, go grab something. I had to set up a lot of different things ahead of time that I might want to grab later and make it, program it so that it was easy for me to grab them. So, I mean, you know, in that regard, hardware wins. Um, you know, my, my rig is kind of a hybrid. Of, of laptop and, and hardware. Um, and hopefully, you know, in terms of where this is going, hopefully laptops will, you know, one of two things will happen. Laptops will get multi-touch screens or the, uh, you know, iPads will just become more powerful so that they can actually run 
the big boy software. That kind of goes into my next question um, about what your what some of the main pieces of your live rig are. I'm running through a, uh, a MacBook, and the host program that I'm using is Ableton Live. Uh, with a few different pr- uh, plugins, I'm using G Media Music's uh, or G Force. I'm trying to remember which name they go by. Uh, the Mini Monster, which is the uh, you know their Mini Moog plugin, mm-hmm. um, which is just phenomenal. I absolutely love that thing. I actually um, uh, it was a toss up between that and the Arturia, which uh, to tell you the truth, I think they both sound absolutely amazing, and you really can't go wrong. Um, with one versus the other in terms of sound quality, they're both uh, unbelievable. But the the reason I went with the G Media is um, because it has this really great feature. Uh, I believe they call it the Mellow Man controls, where they dedicate an octave of keys that on your screen are reverse color, just like the bottom octave on a Hammond. Mm-hmm. And you can save in those keys what's called meta patches. So you could do one of two things. You could have one patch with 12 different variations on that patch and switch them with the keys while you're playing so you never have to touch your laptop. What kind of patches are you switching between? Just different Um, sounds with those soft synths in Ableton? um, Generally, what I use that octave for is, you know, if I'm uh, soloing, if I'm taking, you know, like I have a synth lead, right? Um, I will have variations on that particular patch. Like um, I will activate, I'll have it really plain uh, as the starting point, and then I'll have variations where I have different configurations of delay on them. So if I want to dial in more and more delay, I can just hit a key on my keyboard and it switches. Um, I'll have certain patches with more resonance on them, mm-hmm. uh, more detuning, like I'll activate an additional oscillator that's detuned against the others. Um, you know, uh, I will also, you know, sometimes I'll have uh, an additional o- oscillator that's an octave down. Um, so, you know, I'll have like 12 different variations of the same patch. Um, or you could also set it up where, let's say you have, you know, you have a song and there's four different patches, distinctly different patches for that song. You could actually program one meta patch for the song and have all your patches saved within that, and they change drastically. You can do it that way. So, um, you know, getting back to the whole instantaneous tactile control, I don't have to touch my laptop at all Mm -hmm. during that. I can just do it right from the keys on the keyboard. So that's, you know, for that reason, that's one of my favorite plugins. Um, I'm also using, jeez, uh, 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 what is it? Uh, Applied Acoustics um, Lounge Lizard, which is a, you know an electric piano plugin. Which is uh, it's a physical modeling plugin, so it's very uh, forgiving on your CPU. Um, and I set a bunch of patches. I have a I have a Rhodes Mark One eighty eight suitcase here, and I you know went through every single control and A beat it with the real thing to get you know, the patch at the Lounge Lizard plug to be as close to my actual roads as possible. Um, so I'm running that. And then there's a few other things I just picked up here and there, a few other synth plugins. Uh, some of them are free. And, you know, I encourage people to go, go get them because they're free and they sound great. Listen, baby, ain't no mountain high, ain't no valley low. So far, you've mentioned a keyboard, 
and a laptop and you have various plugins that you're running with Ableton Live and these soft synths, um, what other hardware are you bringing? Um, in terms of hardware, um, you know, I always for years was a two keyboard person. Um, I had to have two different sets of keys. And um, lately I've been, it, it's been a struggle for me, but I've just been going out with one. Um, and, you know, one of the reasons I always loved having two is um, I just liked playing two sounds at once and not having to set up splits ahead of time. So, you know, again, with that whole programming, the opportunities for spontaneity ahead of time, I've, you know, I've gone the path of setting up splits and that sort of thing. So I'm just using one board. And uh, believe it or not, it's an old board uh, that I got when I was in high school. It's a Roland D70. Hmm. And it was a board that sat in my closet for years, and I never got rid of it because um, it's the first time to my knowledge that Roland, uh, one and only time that Roland on a uh, synth decided to include uh, master keyboard functionality into it. So even though, you know, the sounds are archaic and I almost never use any of the sounds that are actually on it anymore, I held on to it because I knew at some point uh, in time I would need a master controller. And when I finally decided to go incorporating the laptop in the rig, I took it out of the closet and have been using it ever since. Um, and again, I, you know, there's maybe two sounds on it I actually still use, but uh, I just use it as a controller. I don't know why Roland decided to incorporate that, but I'm glad they did. Uh, so that's the controller. And then the other thing is uh, a Nord Electro rack, which I love dearly um, because I am very much a meat and potatoes vintage um, kind of a player. And the organ sounds on that are absolutely ridiculous, as is the clav. Um, I use some the roads are okay. I use some of those. They're, they're, they're decent. Um, and the Wurlitzer on there is actually really, really good. But, you know, just the organ is screaming, and so is the clap. So I have that routed through um, Ableton to, you know, I have a channel set up in Ableton to just route MIDI out to the uh, Electro so I can access it at any time. And then from there, um, you know, I'm using, uh, you know, one of two mixers. I have a little Mackie 1202 or a Rolls little line mixer. Um, why why do you mix those externally? Why don't you mix those in software? Um, well, first of all, because you know the electro is a is a external piece of hardware, and it has to go through um, a mixer, and I don't trust sound people. <laughs> no but you offense. could you could couldn't you come into your audio interface? Uh, and mix it in Ableton with your other soft synths and just have a master out? It's just as easy for me to set up a tiny mixer mm -hmm. uh, as it would be for me to do that. And with setting up the mixer, I'm not taxing the CPU with audio throughput mm -hmm. uh, you know, or dealing with any kind of latency that might result as, you know, as a result of that. My Nord Electro 2 lacks... Um a pitch bend. You might look into, um, you know, using a chaos pad for that or, um, oh, okay. you know, or they actually, they have a, that the chaosolator, which is cool as hell. Um, I don't know if you could configure that to just send pitch bend information. 
Mm-hmm. You know, or and uh, just an external ribbon controller. I know they sell those. Oh right. Um, that's an option. Um, or you know, there are one octave USB keyboards that you know you could pick up with one finger that weigh nothing and mm-hmm. cost nothing. Um, you know, they generally feel like crap, but you know, if you just want to throw something on your rig for pitch bend, yeah, that's um, a good idea. It's a you know, it's a cheap alternative. Can you think of any other innovative things you've seen other live musicians doing with their hardware and software to either simplify their live rig or um, just doing something new? We're always trying to make our setup easier unless you're Rick Wakeman and you have guys setting stuff up for you. But, mm-hmm. you know, it's never, it's, in my experience, it's never just a blanket across the board. Everything is simpler. You know, mm-hmm. it's always a trade-off. You know, and when I see people incorporating laptops, I, 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 I really hate to say it, but it's not simpler. It's lighter. It's absolutely lighter and easier to carry around. But, you know, you're trading one set of complications for another. And right. it's, it's really a matter of what are you comfortable with working with. You know, again, if I had my druthers, you know, and I'm not really sure what druthers are, but I've heard people <laughs> say it. Um, you know, I honestly, I, I would have, I would be just, I would have that Billy Preston rig. I mean, I would be surrounded by a Hammond, Clav, Rhodes, a few Mini Moogs, you know, and then some Poly synths, and you know, maybe also a laptop with some other controllers too. I would, I would, you know, that would be awesome. You need like a permanent live setup. Maybe that's just mounted on a trailer and, yeah. and you drive it into the venue and just unhitch the trailer. And then there you are on your platform surrounded by 100 keyboards. You know, that sounds awesome. And then, <laughs> and then again, a friend of mine. The first man to die, but my black won't hide. What's a black man? But, uh, you know, in terms of live stuff, I'll tell you, the one person who really wowed me, and I don't know if it would be considered simpler, is, um, uh, what's his name? I think it's Avi Bortnik. He was a rhythm guitarist who played with Schofield. Um, when Schofield had his Uber Jam band, um, you know, this is where I first saw someone using Ableton Live to trigger tracks and sync up with a drummer. And Avi had this huge pedal board um, where he would, you know, do tap tempo um, and, you know, start clips and stop clips and he would, you know, work it, uh, with his feet while he's playing. Mm-hmm. Um, and the drummer, uh, I think it was Adam Deutsch, um, you know, had headphones obviously cause you know, you, you can't do this unless the drummer has headphones or a loud as hell monitor. Um, but I was just absolutely floored by, you know, just the, the incorporation of the drum and bass stuff with Schofield ripping ridiculous solos over it. Um, so he's definitely someone who, who I've seen do really cool stuff. Um, there's a guy locally, Jeremy Dyens, who I actually went to high school with. He's got a local band called Blivet. Um, and they definitely push the envelope creatively. Um, he's not doing a laptop rig. He has a Nord Electro, or not, sorry, not Electro, a Nord Stage, um, and a bunch of pedals. Uh, like some line six delays and some distortion pedals. Um, and he's doing some really wickedly cool stuff with setting up delay loops and um, and stuff with running keyboards through distortion, which, you know, 
you typically don't associate a rat pedal with a keyboardist, but mm-hmm. you know, um, you know, it's it's really awesome. Um, there's another local Philly band called The Living Sample. Uh, it's a trio. I'm sorry, they just added a guitarist to it, um, but the um, the drummer Andy Meyer is just a, a ridiculous powerhouse of a drummer. The guy just has the most amazing pocket nice. ever, and he. Um, has I don't know what kind of pads he's using, but he, you know, he's constantly setting off samples, whether they're one shots or big swirly long things. Um, so he's always setting them off from his kit. Um, you know, so those are some of the guys locally that are that are doing some really cool stuff, and I definitely encourage listeners to ch- to check out those guys on uh, online and um, uh, you know because they're great local bands. So let's talk about some other people involved in the live event ecosystem. Uh, what is an important change that you would like to see event venues make for a better overall experience for the musicians and the audience? And I'm, I'm thinking here of the venue managers, producers, and even the sound engineers involved. Well, you know what? Uh, the biggest change I would really like to see uh, on a small event scale and I'm talking you know the local clubs that are obviously I know they're in the beer business they're not in the music business but you know um, uh, you know the local clubs that you know where you have a band in a corner not the big venues but pay the musicians <laughs> you know it, I know it, I know How demanding it sounds, of you yeah I and mean, I know it sounds ridiculous but something that's been really a flutter on Facebook around Philly is the fact that, you know, a lot of Philly has for a long time been a live music city, but, um, venues have been disappearing and I'm, and I'm sure it's the same case in any major city with the economy, the way it is. But, um, there's been a lot of musician talk, uh, all over the interwebs about, you know, look, if this model is going to survive, you can't have this 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 thing where they say, um, "Do you want to come and showcase your band and maybe sell some CDs?" And we're not going to pay you. You know, it's just contributing to the overall decline in quality of music that you're going to see. It's it's it's, you know, no self-respecting musician wants to do that. Now, when I say I say wants, because you know, a lot of people still are forced to do that as a starting step. Um, but you know, one pay the musicians to, um, you know, they need to, musicians and clubs really need to step up their social media game. Um, and they need to really accept 50% of the responsibility of advertising for these things because, you know, you're entering, uh, an agreement with a bunch of performers that, okay, we're going to promote, uh, and so should you really, uh, because we're all here to make money. I mean, yes, we're here to make art and all that nice stuff too. But in the end of the day, look, we all have mortgages to pay. So um, they need to really step up their their advertising game. And I'm, you know, like a little ad in the back of the city paper of your local city isn't going to do it. You know, they really need to either hire someone to do PR and learn how social media works or... Um, uh, you know, just do it internally. Um, but I see really, you know, I see all the burden of advertising put on the artist. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and then, you know, the club turns around, oh, you didn't bring enough of a crowd and we're not going to pay you whatever. We're only going to pay you this much of the door. And it's just, it's just a horrible relationship that needs to, that model needs to change. Have you tried anything with success in, in sort of communicating to, I don't know, communicating to the event producers or location managers that you're working with that you're trying to add value to the show, that you want the show to make money, or I don't know, have you had any conversations like that? I'm usually the guy who does the recording uh, and handles the studio end of things. Um, you know, the bands that I've been in always have had someone who is the uh, negotiator. Mm-hmm. And I've been in a band for probably 10 years now, a hip-hop band called Vitamin F. The The person that... I started this thing with, his name is uh, Chris Mottershead. He uh, has always been someone who um, has been a negotiator, who has been able to put together good arrangements, um, you know, with these venues to make sure that everyone's happy. Um, You know, he's the kind of guy that if I, you know, years ago when we both lived downtown, you know, I'd be out for a beer with him and he'd say, hang on, I have to go use the can. So five minutes later, he comes back and he goes, yeah, I just got us a gig here. And I look at him and say, I thought you had to go take a leak. He's like, yeah, I did that too. <laughs> like, hey, wait, wait, you were gone five minutes, dude. You took a leak and negotiated to get, you know. So he's a classic example of some of the kind of people that I've been fortunate enough to, to work with where I handle the recording aspect and he handles, uh, or they handle the negotiations. But um, I'll tell you, there's one club in, in, in the village in New York called the 55 it's on bleaker street and it is uh it has long since been um you know uh a great little venue classic example of a little bar that is dedicated to live music i mean i've seen uh god i've seen you know wayne krantz there a bunch of times and keith carlock and lincoln goines and and tim lafay and and uh mike stern and you know you know all these you know ridiculous big level cats who play in the small club and, you know, as, as simple and ridiculous as this sounds, this model works. You know, those clubs are in the beer business. They want to sell drinks. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, a lot of people I've seen walk right out the door. Oh, there's a cover? Buy. You know, you know, because people feel this entitlement, this ridiculous entitlement that they don't have to pay for music. Uh, thank you, Illegal Downloading, for spreading that. <laughs> that um mentality but you know look i understand you want to you know you want to get something for your dollar so they uh, you know they do a thing where you pay a whatever it is a ten dollar entry fee per set and that gives you a voucher for two drinks so Hmm. as a customer you're getting something for your money the bar is making sure that they're collecting money at the door so they're making money on drinks, and they're pulling in money to pay the band. And I know that's just a ridiculously simple model, but hey, in a small venue, that works. Yep. And I would really like to see that adopted uh, elsewhere because, you know, again, when you just say, oh, it's just a $10 cover to see the band, half your people are going to walk around, walk, turn around and walk away. Mm-hmm. And then nobody wins.
One thing that I would love to see from sound engineers is for, you know, and I don't want to piss off any particular sound engineers, so I certainly are, say, I'm not going to name. Say, I don't think any. I don't think I have any listeners in Philadelphia, so you can do whatever <laughs> no, you want. I'm not going to name names. I really am not. But you know, I, I'm sure everyone in a band can relate to this experience. Uh, for the most part, sound engineers need to learn one simple fact: you are there to enhance the sound, not to reenact that scene in the beginning of Back to the Future where the speaker knocks Michael J. Fox back <laughs> about 50 feet. That's okay. my logo on the website. That's funny. Oh, that's a great scene. But, I mean, you know, there have been so many times where in the audience it's like, I can't listen. It's too freaking loud. I completely agree. I think it has a lot to do with the interaction between a sound engineer working on their own, there's no house manager or anybody else involved, and a musician. And so when I have that experience as an audience member and I look back at the sound engineer, I feel like I know exactly what's going on. Um, so what happens a lot is musicians come up to sound engineers and say they want it to be really loud or this part needs to be really loud or that part needs to be really loud. And then even during the show, then they're like pointing at the sound engineer, asking them to turn it up or one of my pet peeves, they ask this audience, can you hear it? And the audience is all really excited and pumped up on adrenaline. And they're like, no, it needs to be louder. And then they're like, okay, make it louder. And then so they turn the entire room against the sound engineer to get them to make it loud and, and bad then a lot of times. So after experiencing that many times, then sound engineers often just default on louder than they normally would because they just assume that they're going to get that note from the audience or from the artists themselves. And when you're working gigs that maybe you're not that into or don't pay that much, you sometimes end up making choices like that because you just don't want to have to deal with a lot of crap from people. It's only saved me in the past sometimes when there's a house manager and he'll come up to me and say, hey, I think it's a little loud or X, Y, and Z about the sound. And I'll be like, oh, you're right. And I'm totally not standing up for my own values of quality because I'm just afraid of entering into conflict with somebody or I don't want to get notes from the stage. Bands can be real divas um, and real bitchy. And, you know, when they start doing that whole asking the audience, is it all right? It's like, you know, oh, look, man, it's so half bad. your audience is drunk, dude, you know, <laughs> and can't tell relative. You know, one of, the, one of the first things to go as soon as you start getting wasted is your ability to sense relativity and volumes, you know, how loud something is compared to something else. And one thing, too, that I would suggest for, for young, budding sound engineers for live venues, uh, especially in live situations, if you can't hear certain things or if something's not clear or muddy or something like that, with EQ, your first instinct should be to cut, not add. <laughs> Don't boost out of default. Start carving things away, especially when you have a system with, you know, more subwoofers than uh, is really necessary. And, you know, the other thing, too, is I hear a lot of guys, you know, set the whole mix based on the drums. And in my opinion, you know, that's the last thing you should do, you know, because the thing that immediately suffers is your vocals. Mm -hmm. You know, you're, you can't hear the lyrics, you can't hear what the singer's doing, but it's the one instrument that can't control its stage volume. I do not need, yes, not need a microphone. A microphone. 
Philadelphia area, and Howie has a master's degree in jazz performance from Philadelphia's University of the Arts. If there are any students out there listening, uh, Howie, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your academic experience and how it affects your work today, and then how it led you to start teaching. Oh, um, yeah, my time at UArts was phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal, and um, I, you know, it's one of the best points in my life. One thing that was really great about my teachers there um, is that they really encouraged me to look at what they taught me as tools for creating my own voice. You know, there was a lot of studying of, you know, obviously your foundation elements like, you know, your scales, arpeggios, your theory, you know, all the traditional stuff. But, um, you know, they really encouraged me to use it to find my own identity. And um, that's something that I really treasured. And um, I try to use that as my approach to teaching uh, and always have tried to use that as my approach to teaching ever since is that, you know, these are tools. Uh, All these techniques are just tools for you to build your house. And you need to figure out you know, what's your house going to be? Did you um, make good contacts in uh, whatever program you were in that got you some of the work that you have today? What you really should be doing is networking. You should be trying to play with as many people as possible. Um, because I still, to this day, uh, every once in a while, I run into someone that I went to University of the Arts with that I haven't, hadn't spoken to in years. Um, and then all of a sudden they have an opportunity for me or I need them for somebody or for, for a project rather. Um, so you really should be trying to spend your time networking. Um, and you should also definitely spend your time developing good organizational habits. As boring as that is, that is so crucial to being successful later. Well, thanks, Howie. Where is the best place for people to follow you online and to check out your music and your studio? And also, on top of that question, if you have any shows coming up that you'd like people to know about. Keybomb.com, K-E-Y-B-O-M-B.com is my personal site. and You can see some work that's on there. Um, also, I'm on Facebook as well. You can just do a search for Keybomb on Facebook. Um, and I wind up posting a lot of, you know, informational things on there, like some of the uh, educational stuff that I've done, such as my screencasts uh, and my articles, which you can also get on the Keybomb site or on Rain Computer's site. You can see them there as well. There is a new project that I've, original project I've been working with. It's called Package. And um, just stay tuned on uh, Keybomb and on my Facebook page. I will be putting uh, updates as to when we start having shows. It's, it's kind of a relatively new project, but I'm, I'm very, very excited about it. Um, and we'll be, we'll be putting some shows out there soon enough. Sound design live. Okay. You know what? There's one other thing I would like to add sure. to, the, um, to the college thing. You know, there are professors at every college that have knowledge that does not get co- incorporated into the standard syllabus, uh, syllabi and, and standard curriculum. Seek out professors who know things that you want to know. Um, you know, you'd be surprised at the 
wealth of knowledge you can get just by grabbing a professor in the hall and saying, hey, listen, I heard you know something about X, Y, and Z. You know, what can you tell me about that? Or can I maybe, can we get some coffee and you can tell me about it? And, you know, nine times out of 10, whenever I did that, you know, professors were more than happy to share that knowledge with me. Uh, in fact, you know, one time I learned a ridiculous amount of uh, information about piano te techniques sitting in a bar having a beer with a professor. Nice. Well, my brother just moved to Scranton, so do you have any suggestions for places he should visit, I guess, in the area for beer? There's a, there's a place called Monk's, which is a, uh, a Belgian specialty place, and there's another place owned by the same people called Nodding Head, and they're, they're, they're an in-house brew pub. They brew there. There's Sugar Moms, um, is a phenomenal place. You can't swing a bat and not hit one. I love Philly. It's such a great city, even though, you know, for live music, it's, 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 it's so ass backwards. This world was made for all men. Sound design, live.